0: all your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another." and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the Leawood campus at Christ Community. I'm Tom. I uh, serve on the teaching team here. And uh, for those of you who are joining us online, special warm welcome to you. So welcome. Well, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates was asked one time how he would sum up all of philosophical reflection. Socrates responded with two words, know thyself. Socrates' words profoundly, I think, speak into the tenor of our times. As moderns, we are on a journey to find the true me. But there is a glaring irony as our culture is marked increasingly by a gnawing identity crisis. We don't know who we are anymore. In our identity quest, we no longer point to our people because our people change so fast. We don't point to our family because family ties, well, you know, are often fractured, fragile, and fade. Our identity is not tied to our geography because we often move. And in our work, we often change jobs. It seems to me we seem suspended in midair somewhere, untethered, tractionless, as we wrestle with the deepest questions of the human soul. Who am I? What is my self, my true self? What does that mean for me? Now, instead of tradition, family, geography, or religious, context, giving us a new sense or a sense of who we are and how we should live in light of that, each of us has been set free to find our way to me. But let me ask you a question. Is this self-discovery of self delivering the freedom, joy, and happiness and flourishing that it so boisterously promises. In our modern quest to know thyself, is it possible we have actually become more anxious, more confused, more isolated, more empty, more exhausted, more despairing? In this matter of identity, this important matter of identity, the Christian faith profoundly speaks into our cultural moment with a timeless word. Rightly understood, identity is about who I am, of course, but also about who we are. In Christ, we are new persons, and we are a new people. But what does that mean for us? How does this new identity inform our individual lives, guide our relationships, inform our Monday worlds, and shape our community of faith. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul speaks to this morning in our text. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Now, let's recall Paul's inspired letter to the Ephesians scales some of the highest and most beautiful literary vistas ever written by human hands. It's extraordinary. And it's divided, as we've said, this letter in two distinct yet closely interrelated parts. Chapter 1 through 3, Paul describes in jaw-dropping draw drop ah, sorry, say in jaw-dropping wonder, theological wonder, the good news of Jesus, what he's done for us. But now in chapters 4 through 6, Paul paints a compelling picture of our new identity in Christ. Paul will point us not just to the new you, but to the To the new us. That which is sustained by sacrificial Christian love of knowing and being known of true belonging indeed. And what we'll notice through this wonderful book is that Paul's guiding metaphor that captures this new reality is the very body of Christ. We are a new people. Now, as chapter three concludes, if you have your text open, Paul prays that as followers of Jesus, we would live more fully into this new identity of being new persons and a new people. And notice he says that we would be rooted and established in love. But what does this love look like? When it's fleshed out in everyday life, given our new identity as new persons and new people? As new persons knit together in community, we say goodbye, Paul says, to an old way of living, to embrace a comprehensive and integral way of living. You'll notice the number of times Paul will use the English, translate English, the word walk. It comes from a Hebrew idea of wisdom of the halakha, the way of wisdom, a comprehensive way of life. And here Paul, Rabbi Paul, as it comes to the Apostle Paul, picks up on this new comprehensive and integral, coherent way of living. So, Paul reminds us in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 first like a change of clothes, we are to put off our old self and put on our new self. Because we are not who we used to be, we are not to live as we used to live. We are a new family. So, in our text this morning, Paul gives what often ancient writers describe as a communal code of ethics. And it is indeed that, but I do not want us to see it that way primarily. This is not a check-off-the-box religious checklist. But rather, in context, it's a reflection of our inner transformation and the relational outworkings of joyful Christian love ensconced, embedded in Christian community. Okay? So let's keep that in mind. Having said that, Paul now highlights in verses 25-32, which is our focus, three distinctives of our new loving family, the new us, the true us. And we're going to see that Paul says the new us is first, wise with words, secondly, good at anger, and third, radically forgives. That's how the text builds. First, first distinctive. The true us, our new identity, is wise with words. Look at me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth With his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, a few things say more about who we truly are, who we are really becoming, right, than our words, both spoken and written. In other words, our words say more than our words. Jesus reminds us of this when he said, Our words capture the true condition of our hearts. Recently, I had my annual eye exam. I like my optometrist, by the way. And uh, each time, he puts these bright lights in my eyes and takes pictures of my eyeball. It's kind of gross, I know. Um, But he says to me, every time, he says, I'm not just looking at the health of your eyes, Tom. I am looking at the health of your entire circulatory system. Because he tells me every time, it's one of his gigs, The only place in our body where we can actually see firsthand the true condition of our arteries and veins is in the back of our eyeball. Wow. Pretty cool. But my optometrist actually gets a pretty good glimpse of my heart by looking into my eyes. This, on a spiritual dimension, is exactly what Paul is saying here that our words are revealing window into our hearts. This is what Paul is saying. In other words, our new identity, our new creation hearts, change our words. The new us brings what I like to call a new lip style. It is a lip style that traffics first, notice the text, not in lies or deception, but truth. Truth communicated in love, as Paul has already mentioned and embedded in chapter 4, verse 15. Now, let's remember this is wisdom literature. It's plucked from Old Testament wisdom literature by Rabbi Paul. Let's remember in wisdom literature how much the tongue is talked about, and particularly the book of Proverbs, how powerful our words are and how wisdom must guide our words. For example, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power, literally Hebrews says, in the hand of the tongue, death and life. Wow. That our words can literally bring life or death to others. Also, James picks up on this in the New Testament, this wisdom language, and says, right, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. And Proverbs 1019 reminds us that we often must limit our words. There must be restraint where there are many words. Transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And guiding us further into this wisdom with words, Paul provides very on the ground specific guidance for our tongues. Notice in verse 29 in this text. He says, Let no corrupting talk. Uh, I like the word unwholesome come out of your mouth, but only such as a good for building up, or some translations say edification, as it fits the occasion, or rather according to the need of that moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now here Paul gets really practical. He gives us a three-point guideline for all speech. In other words, Paul is saying, as new people, as new persons, as followers of Jesus, before we speak, before we write that social media post, before we publish that blog, or send that email, yes, to pastors too, we, we love you, just so you know, we're with you, but notice we are to stop and be wise, and loving with our words. Notice the three questions that emerge in this text that should guide our, our speech. Guide our words, Got our blog posts, guide our emails, guide our text. Are my words edifying? Secondly, are they necessary? Third, are my words filled with grace and truth? The point Paul is making is that Christian love, embodied, slows down our speech. It makes every word intentional and not impulsive. See, we do not speak the way we used to speak because we are not now who we once were. A new style, guided by Christian love becomes increasingly normative in our day-to-day life, in our interaction with our classmates, our spouse, our children, our friends, our neighbors, our work colleagues, our brothers and sisters in Christ in local church community. Now, how many of us have had regrets for what we've said? Anybody here? (laughs) Right? I mean, I have. Ask my wife on that one, okay? How many relationships have been frayed and destroyed by something we have said? How many of us have been so deeply wounded by what someone said to us or about us. And as local church families, many local churches are amazingly harmed, tragically harmed, by unwise tongues, by words of speculation, outright lies, partial truths, and gossip. So Ephesians 4.29 is a wonderful text for all of us to memorize and to guide our daily speech. The first distinctive of this new life, this new community, Paul says, is that Christian love embodied is wise with words. Secondly, notice it is also true that the true us is good at anger. Verse 26 Paul says, be angry, which he's pulling from Psalm 4.4, 4, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, there's much we can say here. Anger, first of all, is part of what it means to be human, right? Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, was angry at times, especially at religious hypocrisy. Anger can be good and right when it properly responds to wrongdoing, to evil, to lies, to betrayal, and injustice. Paul says, be angry. In other words, there are things followers of Jesus should be angry about. And we also need to be aware that anger is fueled by underlying emotions, such as fear, loneliness, loss, and hurt. And what's very important for us is to process our anger wisely we need to recognize also that anger is a double edged sword there is righteous anger and much more common unrighteous anger so how do we discern the difference a wonderful book uh, written by dan allender and temper longman is called the cry of the soul how our emotions reveal our deepest questions about god and here's what they say i like what they say they say unrighteous anger condemns anyone who stands in its way Righteous anger desires to bless, to fill life rather than drain it. In other words, righteous anger always seeks relational connection and repair. Rightful anger recognizes what is true, good, and beautiful, and when it's being trampled on. When a right is called wrong and a wrong is called right. When good is called evil and evil is called good. When justice is ignored. But what about unrighteous anger? Paul's imagery here is instructive. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, it's a picture of not letting your anger have a long shelf life. Because unrighteous anger is very destructive to you, to relationships, and to any local church community. And Paul seems to go on in verse 31 with these loving words of warning. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. So letting anger fester inside us, feeding it can lead to growing resentment. We know that from our own experience. Bitterness, wrathful outburst, slanderous speech toward others. And notice what Paul does here. He seems to be suggesting by its proximity of grammar that anger often serves as a welcome mat for the evil one to wreak havoc in our inner worlds and in our relationships and in our communities. It's not incidental that just after Paul says, be angry but do not sin, he writes in verse 27, notice the text, give no opportunity for the devil. We will be angry at times. Sometimes we need to be angry. But if we are honest, much of our anger, friends, is destructive. It's destructive to ourselves and damaging to those who are closest to us. I know this from personal experience, as you probably guessed. A faith community living out the love of Christ as a new people must be good with anger. The true us is wise with anger. Notice the third distinctive that flows from this is that we need to really be good at forgiveness. That we radically forgive as a new community. Look at me in verse 32. Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul knows that we're going to blow this in community. He clearly anticipates this painful, messy of reality of doing life together as Christians. And he says very clearly here that super glue that holds a community together, and may I say a marriage, a friendship, is radical forgiveness. And each one of us needs to practice this kind of forgiveness. And notice what Paul says. It's remembering daily how much we, how much I have been forgiven. Now, this is brought home powerfully by our Lord Jesus. Peter asks, How many times do I need to forgive somebody? Goodness is the idea. And Matthew chapter 18, Jesus responds by telling a story. You remember that story? The story is of, let's just say in our context, two employees. They have the same boss. One is massively in debt. It would be like millions and millions of dollars to the employer. And the employer forgives this person of their debt out of mercy. It can never pay it. And in that context, they ended up going to debtor's prison and often being tortured. Right away, after that person is forgiven that massive multi million dollar net debt, that employee goes to a fellow employee who owes him or her, like 20 bucks. It's the idea. Get the picture? And grabs that person by the neck and says, pay that $20 now. And the employer finds out about it and goes to this person who was forgiven $20 million and says some of the most chilling words Jesus ever uttered. Jesus reads him the riot act. Here's his words. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Hmm. My sense is, is Paul clearly has Jesus' story in mind along with the Lord's prayer in mind. Because in verse 32, he says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, to forgive another human being is what God asks us to do, to be like him. To not forgive is to be unmerciful. Now remember, the Lord's Prayer, which most of us, if we have a Christian tradition or whatever, know what that is, right? We can quote it. Embedded in the Lord's Prayer is this picture, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Trespass is to cross rightful boundaries, to cause harm, right? To offend, to distress. And one of the amazing things we forget about the Lord's Prayer is right after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives the most gut-wrenching warning that if we are unforgiving, we will not be forgiven. Each one of us has a massive sin debt. Yet Jesus, in his mercy and grace, went to the cross. He took our sin on him and he paid a debt we could never pay. Each one of us are deserving sinners of eternal judgment. But in God's grace and mercy, he rescued us. In and through Jesus, by forgiving us through his atoning, sacrificial death on the cross. This is the heart of the good news. This forgiveness of our own massive sinful debt By Jesus, profoundly, daily, hourly informs and shapes our forgiveness of others. When we recognize how much we have been forgiven, friends, we are able to forgive others. We, as followers of Jesus, are a forgiven people. So we should be a forgiving people. The new you, the new us, is a forgiving you. A forgiving us. But what does radical forgiveness look like? There's so much we could say here. It's a big topic, but let me highlight a couple things. First of all, it doesn't look like offering excuses. C.S. Lewis paints the contrast of excuses versus forgiveness brilliantly in his essay on forgiveness. He says this, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin The sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, its dirt, its meanness and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. To excuse what can really produce good excuses is not Christian charity. It is only fairness. Now listen to what Lewis says. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you and in me. Let's let that sink in. Are we offering excuses or truly forgiving others? Let me ask you something I asked myself this week. Is there someone I or you need to forgive? Think with me for a moment. Is there someone you need to ask forgiveness of? When was the last time you said to someone, without excuse, will you forgive me? When is the last time you said to someone, I forgive you? See, from the heart, as new creation souls, we choose to willfully forgive as an act of faith and worship. To God. Let's also remember that forgiveness and trust, although often related, are not the same thing. Forgiveness is immediate, or Jesus calls us to forgive in that immediacy. Rebuilding trust takes time. We can truly forgive someone and yet not trust them fully. Trust requires a track record. It is earned over a long period of time, and all of us know It can be lost quickly. So who are we? This is the question Paul raises. We are a new people whose loving ways are wise with words, good with anger, and we radically forgive. So how are we living into this new identity as apprentices of Jesus? And if you're like me, transparently, sometimes I feel like I'm taking one step forward and two steps back. Just ask those closest to me. God's not done with Tom yet. I think you all know that. I don't have all the answers to this struggle we all face as followers of Jesus. Spiritual formation often seems agonizingly slow in my life. But I do know one thing we need each other to grow deeper into our identity. We don't become formed in Christ likeness alone. There's no Jesus in me spirituality in the New Testament. It's Jesus in us. We need each other. One of my favorite writers recently is, he calls himself a neurotheologian. I like that. It's Jim Wilder. And out of the lens of theology and interpersonal neurobiology, he wrote a book called The Other Half of the Church. And he says this with such insight he says, Our brains draw life from the strongest relational attachments to grow our character and to develop our identity. And here's what he says. Who we love shapes who we are. And then he says, character formation is the central task of the church. A Hearty amen on that. And Paul would say amen to him. So let me suggest three encouragements. Can I? They're encouragements. As we together more fully live into our new identity as new persons in Christ and a new people. As we pursue greater Christ-like formation. First, discern the difference between strong desire and deep desire. We are desiring creatures. We live from the heart. And I think it's helpful to distinguish between strong desire and deep desire. What do I mean by that? At any given moment, our strongest desire may be contrary to our deepest desire, our identity desire. For example, when it comes to words, my strongest desire might be at the moment to tear down others with words, but my deepest desire is to build up others with words. Or when it comes to anger, my strong desire may be to blow up and retaliate. My deepest desire is to steward my anger well, to direct it in righteous and not unrighteous ways. Or when it comes to forgiveness, my strong desire may not be to free May that be the last thing I want to do is to forgive. I want to reject that person. I want to inflict pain on that person in some way. But my deepest desire is to forgive that person as I have been forgiven. As we live more fully into our identity, transformation, friends, comes at a heart level where our loves over time and the power of the Holy Spirit are reordered. Our deepest desires begin to change. And our strong desire gives way to our deepest desire. Secondly, if you've been a part of Christ's community, you hear this a lot, but we need to hear it again. Stop merely trying harder and focus on training better. Living into our new identity is not simply trying harder to do it. That's a disaster. Rather, we experience transformation over time as we train better with Jesus, as we embrace his precepts and practices, In many ways, our spiritual formation mirrors our physical formation. We know that we're integral beings. We don't go out and just try harder to run a marathon when we never train for it. That'd be ridiculous. Yet many of us approach our Christian life like that. Growing into our new identity, being formed in greater Christ-likeness involves embracing the spiritual disciplines Jesus practiced. These are activities or patterns such as solitude and study and prayer and fasting and so forth and community and service. This spiritual training enables us, you and me, to do what we cannot do by direct effort of will. As we engage in these practices over time, what takes place, friends, is we become the kind of person from within that increasingly reflects our new identity in Christ, and our behavior begins to flow from that. For example, growing in wisdom and words often. I know this is true for me, often requires regular engagement in the spiritual discipline of silence. A friend of mine, I just so love this honesty, he was describing you all back, like he said, I I realize I've always struggled getting, having the last word in a conversation. You know anybody like that? Maybe they're sitting in your seat. Always having the last word. I know none of you are there. You know somebody, right? And he said, I realized I always had to have the last word, whether it was in my relationship with my wife, my team at work. And he said, I practiced for several years a discipline of not having to have the last word. This has transformed my life and my friendships, my work. These disciplines bring transformation. But most important, they're not just about experiencing God's supernatural power to change, but hear me carefully. They are engaged in to more deeply encounter Christ's abiding presence with you, moment by moment. We are formed and transformed as we practice the spiritual disciplines Jesus taught us to practice. I love the story of the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma. I saw him not too long ago in a concert. Amazing. One of my favorite quotes of him. Uh, If you know anything about his brilliance, he practices rigorously daily routines on his cello. (laughs) He put it this way, if I miss a day of practice, I know it. If I miss a week of practice, my colleagues know it. If I miss a month of practice, the world knows it. If you and I are not training on a daily basis as apprentices of Jesus If we're not embracing the disciplines he taught us, we know it. Others around us know it. Husband, wife, family, work colleagues, right? And pretty soon the entire world knows it. Most of us need to think deeply about this, practically about this. And we will not know Jesus more fully, nor experience his delight in us without engaging in the spiritual disciplines. We will not know his deep heart for us, nor the kind of delight in us he longs for us to experience. And lastly, and let me simply say the third one, we will not be perfect, but we can make progress. Can I just say that? <laughs> this side of new heavens and new earth, we're all going to fall short, y'all, of living fully into our new identity, Progress, not perfection, is our aim. And don't forget this. Paul, who writes Ephesians 4, all these good things, all these aspirational things, what was it like for him in his incarnational reality? He also wrote Romans 7. And in Romans 7, Paul speaks of the tension we all struggle with, every one of us. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want us what I keep doing. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, while we struggle to live into our new identity, I do and you do, in Christ, we are new persons and a new people. May Socrates' ancient words, to know thyself, point us to know Christ more fully. For knowing Christ more fully, we more fully know ourselves. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. Christ, you have died for us and rose again. And you invite us into this yoke of transformation. You invite us individually and collectively. We are a new person in Christ, new creations if we trusted you. But we are also a new people. Lord, help us to live more fully into that. That we live into our full identity. That we be wise with words, Lord. Lord. That would be good with anger, and that we would radically forgive others as you have forgiven us.
0: Amen.